Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Now, regular listeners will be expecting to hear Tarek at this point as well, but he's not been able to join me for this uh, intro and outro part of the podcast. Um, If you tuned in last week, you'll know he was having issues with his internet and this week he's having even more issues as he's moving house. So uh, he should be back for next week's episode, I'm pleased to say, and he is in the main part of the podcast as well, which this week features not one but two great guests. We have uh, Abir Mukherjee, who is the Times best-selling author of the Sam Wyndham series of crime novels set in the Raj era in India. His debut, uh, A Rising Man, won the CWA Endeavour Dagger for the best historical crime novel of 2017. And as we'll hear in the podcast, um, after having worked in finance for a number of years, uh, he turned his hand to writing quite successfully uh, with uh, an entry into a competition that got that first book published. Our second guest is uh, Vasim Khan, who is the author of two crime series set in India, the Baby Ganesh Agency series set in modern Mumbai, and the Malabar House historical crime novels set in 1950s Bombay. Uh, And again, Vasim is a multi-award winning author, uh, and it was great fun speaking to both of them together. We thought we'd get them on together because they also are the hosts of their own podcast, the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast, Uh, And they had actually had Tarek on as a guest and uh, we invited them on to the Page One podcast in return. Uh, And it's a really fun and perhaps a bit of a different style of chat given uh, that there are four of us in the chat this time. But I think it flows well and it's good fun and still a lot to learn from what they have to say. So I, I won't hold it up anymore. I'll just play a quick advert for our Page One writer's notebook and I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and just to let you know about next week's guest. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. 
and then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Ed, did you did you both always want to be writers? Sorry, are you, are you recording already? I am. Yeah, I've, I've just jumped. Oh. I've gone straight into it. <laughs> no, you, you go professionals, first. they're professionals. There's no join there. You see, they just go straight into it. <laughs> I was hoping you were, and then I was you wouldn't know it was recording. <laughs> this is also live. Marco, your voice, you sound like melted chocolate. It's just <laughs> I'm telling you, Vas, this is what we need. We need whatever software Marco is using to <laughs> You know what he should do? He should he should take over from Clooney with the advertising of the uh, uh, what do you call it? The Nespresso. Nespresso. Yes. <laughs> there you are, Marco. Yeah, you well, ask me the damn question, you fool. <laughs> what was the question? Did you always want to be a writer? Yes, yes. I have to I have to say yes. Well, for as long as I can remember, as an adult, yeah. Um, as a child, I always wanted to be in finance because I watched a, a film called The Secret of My Success with <laughs> Michael J. Fox, right? Here's a, a tip. Never choose your career based on a film you watch at 13. Um, at least you didn't want to be a werewolf. was <laughs> 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 <Watch> that? <laughs> yeah, I, I set my sights low. Um, but no, no, I, I, yeah. I mean, since probably fifth year, sixth year at school, I always wanted to write. Um, I remember, you know, I grew up in Scotland like you guys did, so I did sixth year studies. So I have a proper education, unlike the scene. <laughs> grew up in England and, and I was the only one in my class who ended up doing six-year studies English uh, and so we used to have lessons down the pub sometimes me and my teacher right you can't do that anymore obviously. in those days when I were a lad you could still do that and he said to me you know whatever you do do not study English at university you'll end up teaching snotty-nosed kids like yourself in some school somewhere uh, and so I didn't and then I wasted um, 20 years of my life doing something that I really didn't enjoy and, what... and, now, I do, and now I do a podcast with Vaseem <laughs> <laughs> what about you Vaseem you redeemed yourself uh, well no firstly I wanted to be an international cricketer it's just one small problem with that which is that I'm fairly shit at cricket um, <laughs> According to Abbey, anyway. No, no, um, I was going to say, because you've, you've got a frozen shoulder at the moment, haven't you? That's your it's improved a lot. I might be making a comeback very, very shortly. <laughs> uh, anyway, the dream hasn't died. I still play cricket every weekend in the nice. summer. So, you know, I'm waiting for that little knock on the door, England call up. Uh, but in the meantime, um, yeah, no, I did want to be a writer. I wrote my first novel, age 17. Uh, I'd started reading Terry Pratchett's Discworld and I thought, you know what, this looks really easy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Pratchett just made it look easy. So I wrote a comic, a really rubbish comic sci-fi fantasy. And I actually finished it and sent it into some agents, age 17. And I honestly, I, I kid you not, I honestly believed that I would get a big publishing deal and I wouldn't have to go to university and I'd be, you know, a rich and famous famous writer. Um, that just shows you how stupid 17-year-olds are. <laughs> well, I was going to say, when did <laughs> reality hit? Yeah, exactly. We're 23 years later. And, and <laughs> yes, it's seven books. What about you guys? What about you guys? Did you always want to be writers? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I did anyway. I mean, it was definitely, 
yeah, I definitely wanted to write from a from a young age and uh, and and wrote loads of crappy wee short stories and notebooks and all that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, it was definitely something that I wanted to do for ages. Yeah, it's the same here. I mean, I was always I loved like the movies and all this sort of stuff. So I used to make really crap homemade films, and I remember I wrote. It was after playing some sort of crap game on the Atari ST that I wrote a little book that I got Dad to take into his work and photocopy that I then made my friends pay me money for at school <laughs> when it was in about primary six or something. Yeah, you, were, you, you were the first to get published. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. Talking <laughs> of film, Marco, talking of film, what I used to do, uh, what I used to do is um, I used to go down the uh, car boot sales and get the pirate, pirate videotapes of the latest films. I used to hire them out to my... Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> so not, not only is Red that illegal... Heat. Red Heat was a big seller. Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger, that was a big, that was a big seller because of all the, the naughty bits in there. <laughs> but it's not the same with the parrot and the eye patch on your shoulder, though, is it, Vass, that, that pirate? Version? Sorry, guys. <laughs> Another very lame joke. <laughs> I see so, where... so, Sorry. so what... What was the um, what, what was the path then? You both wanted to be writers, and how did you guys then find your find your agents, etc.? Why don't you go first, first? Well, um, so I lived in India for a decade. So, I, um, I, like uh, like Abir, I uh, I went into finance. I was a management consultant, and I spent ten years of of that in uh, in India and a bit in China. Then I came back to the UK. And because I knew I wouldn't go back to India, which was quite, you know, it was quite sad for me because it was some of the best years of my life. I decided to write a book set there. I decided to write a crime novel because I love crime fiction. And um, that was my first book, The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopper. I never expected it to, to be published after 23 years of being rejected by pretty much every single agent in the country. I mean, Abir's heard me say this before, but I've been rejected more times than Jennifer Aniston. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> That's harsh on Aniston. That's really. She knows. She knows I love her. She knows I love her. So yeah, it was a surprise to me. I got a four book deal. I sent it out to a handful of agents and AM Heath, an agent from AM AM Heath, uh, Ewan Thornycroft. He sent to me. He he gave me uh, the representation, and then he got a four book deal out of Hodder. And if if your listeners are really wondering why, I suppose because it was just a, a bit different. I mean, that's what my editor said. Um, they liked the way it was written. They liked the fact that it was colourful and it was set in India, this modern, vibrant country, which everybody wants to know a bit more about and thinks they know a lot about. Uh, but of course, uh, India is a lot darker place um, than we often give it credit for, because we're so beguiled by Bollywood and and Slumdog Millionaire and you know the best exotic marigold hotel where everybody is dancing in the streets and <laughs> it's always a happy ending. But it's not really like that in India. So my book is um, my books that series is it's an attempt to shine a light on the India that I experienced personally while I was living there. What about you, Pierre? Before that, Vas, did you, you said it was colourful and that's why they liked it. Was that because you did it in crayon? <laughs> or just the cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, oh, yeah. Um, so for me, as I said, you know, I spent 20 years doing the wrong thing. I went into finance. Vas and I were actually at university together, except I did a proper degree. Um, Vas, your, your degrees when they ran out of toilet roll in the toilets, they did use those, wouldn't we? Um, well, the, the, the odd thing is, just to add to that, we were there at the same time, but we never met. We were both doing um, finance and economics uh, and we never met. And what's even odder is that uh, I was published a year before him and then he was published and I was invited to the new blood panel at Harrogate, uh, which was uh, 
uh, part of part of the Harrogate festivities. It wasn't at Harrogate. It was in London. Are you going to lie here? You're going to tell. Well, I'm not going to lie. I went along. I went along to this new blood panel because I thought, you know what, solidarity. There's another brown Asian crime. Also. <laughs> you didn't know. You I went there. Oh, and this guy. He, he, he wouldn't talk to me all evening. He just completely. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I've got. Firstly, this is a pack of lies, right? One, Vasim didn't know that there was going to be any other Asians there that night. Two, I wasn't even published, right? So he didn't know who I was. He was off chatting to Mark Billingham, right? I was sitting in one corner by myself <laughs> milk, right? He was off swanning around. <laughs> Why were you getting... drinking milk? No, well, I was just drinking it before Vas got to it. That's what Vas drinks. <laughs> um, anyway, to answer your question before Vasim rudely interrupted me, um, yeah, so I, I, as I said, I mean, I, I was in finance for 20 years and I got to the age of 39 and three quarters and I really thought, I don't want to do this anymore. If I, if I don't change now, I'll never, I'll never do what I wanted to. And, you know, in the past, I'd, I'd started writing stuff. I'd write like a chapter of something and then I'd make the mistake of reading it and I would think, and I would lose all confidence and I think this is rubbish and I'd put it in a drawer or you know what it's like life gets in the way you'll, you'll start something but then your job or your family or something will come up and you just won't keep going and and so that happened to me several times I'd never I'd never submitted anything and then I finally did um, and then I saw something on uh, breakfast tv I saw Lee Child on breakfast tv um, basically saying how at the age of 40 he'd lost his job um, and he started writing um, and I'd never read any of his works until then. So I, I picked up the first in the series, Killing Floor, and I read it in two days. Um, and, and a bit like Vass, um, I looked at it, and because it's very, it seems very simply written, it's only now, many years later, that I realise you've got to be really talented to write in such a, a style. Um, but at the time, it gave me a bit of confidence, and I thought, well, let me give it a shot. So I started writing, and I had this idea for sending this British detective to India after the First World War, because... You know, part of what I would want him to do was to look at that period in history because we don't, we forget about it. We don't talk about colonial history. Um, and I wrote about 10,000 words of this. Um, and then I made the mistake of reading it again and realizing <laughs> it was rubbish. And I put it in a drawer. Um, but then I saw a competition in the Telegraph. Um, Penguin Random House were looking for new crime writers. Um, and all they wanted was the first 5,000 words of a novel and a two page synopsis. And that appealed to me because I'm naturally lazy and I'd done the work. Um, so I basically tidied it up. The first 5,000 wrote a two-page synopsis. I spent a week uh, on the, the, the synopsis and a week tidying it up. I did put effort into that. Um, and then I sent it away. Um, and then I didn't hear anything for three, week, uh, three months. I was hoping, you know, I'll get some sort of feedback. Um, but then after about three months, uh, just out of the blue, I was at work and I got an email saying, congratulations, you've won and we're going to publish your novel. <laughs> Uh, except oh. a, I didn't have a novel I had these 10,000 <laughs> words in a drawer um, and B um, yeah I reacted the way anybody from Glasgow reacts when you're faced with good news I started swearing my head off and, and my colleagues thought I was having a heart attack I don't know it's good news um, and you know one of the judges happened to be an agent uh, and he sent me an email saying um, I'd love to represent you come and see me so I did. I went to see him that week um, and he said, look, and, and I got there and Hanif Qureshi was in reception um, in his jogging pants and carrying a Tesco bag. And I just had to pinch myself because I just thought this is surreal. Um, but he offered me... You thought he published Sainsbury's, right? Sorry? 
and, and that was the beginning of um, that was the beginning of my series. I just got very, very lucky. And and what I would say is, no, you should do try every opportunity, try every channel you can, um, because sometimes you get lucky. But but the, 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 those are two very different paths. Obviously, I mean, Vasim, you, you have went through that whole thing of, of of sending books in and getting rejections and stuff like that. What was it that made you keep going at that point? Because that's, you know, that it, it, it personally, you know, speak, speaking personally, it is very deflating when you get, a, you know, rejection, rejection, rejection. What keeps you going at that point? Credi- incredibly deflating um, because in the old days as well, it wasn't easy because uh, you didn't have email. Mm-hmm. So you had to physically print out, you know, I used to print out something like 25 sets of three chapters yeah. with a synopsis and send it out to a blanket bomb 25 or 30 different agents and then you sit back and you think surely one out of these 30 uh, people will, will like what i sent in and then you get you know 30 odd letters back uh, so it is it's incredibly soul destroying i suppose what happens is that you pick yourself off after you've you know um had a, a year maybe a few months off you pick yourself up off the floor and you say well i'm writing because i love doing it and it really is gives me more joy than pretty much anything else. Um, so you carry on. And you... I, I think just to add to that, a lot of the time it's just what you're writing might not fit a particular box at a certain time mm-hmm. with an agent. Um, you know, it's not a reflection on the standard of your work or the, or your talent. I mean, as, as Vaz said, 30 rejections, and now the man's got, what, six books and more awards than you can shake a stick at. Um yeah. So yeah, it's it's it, you shouldn't take it as anything other than right. It's one step back, but I can keep going. I will add one thing to that, Marco. So one of the things that happened over the course of those twenty years is that the first three or four books were, you know, the responses were, you know, go jump off a cliff, go throw yourself, <laughs> yeah. throw yourself in the sea, never write again. Uh, but <laughs> towards the fifth book, perhaps. I started to get a few agents who were kind enough to write back and say, look, we like the way you're writing. This just doesn't fit our list. Send us the next thing that you've written. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes for anything if, for, for people who are listening, uh, who are you know, on that journey. You will improve over the years if you, if you keep at it every single day. If you take a few years off and you literally don't do anything, then you can't really improve. So the first thing is that you've got to keep at it every single day because in spite of what Abir's just said, uh, just to play uh, schoolmaster for a second, there is a certain level, a minimum level of prose quality that uh, agents, experienced agents and editors expect for anything that is publishable. And a lot of the thing that, a lot of the uh, the material that they're sent simply doesn't meet that minimum yeah. requirement, which means it just gets binned straight away. It doesn't matter how good the idea is, it's just not publishable in terms of the written quality. And that just comes with practice and experience you're harsh aren't you you are harsh this is what he does to all of us we've got a whatsapp group of writers and he just slaps us verbally constantly um, it's tough love it's tough it's, love. You know what? we need it sometimes um but what i would say is we're still improving you know i would hope that we are the books we're writing now are better than the ones that we wrote five years ago yeah. um i can't i'll be honest with you i can't read my first book i, I cringe um i can't read any of the seams work you know it's, it's, <laughs> Well, you say that, but, you know, both of your first books found a lot of success. Uh, Vasim, you got the, was it the Waterstons Book Club, Waterstons Paperback of the Year, Telegraph Pick of the Week, and the beer you got, uh, Endeavour Dagger from the Crime Writers Association. You know, so you both got 
both got some good buzz from that first book. That must have been really encouraging. Um, and then, and you've continued to win awards ever since then. Um, no, yeah, you know what? It's great that there is something wonderful about your first book um, being published. When the first one comes out, you do tend to get a wee bit more publicity for your first than you do for your second or your third. And also, I think at the time that Vass and I were published, there were very few sort of non-white crime authors in the UK and our subject matter was different it was refreshing it was still British crime fiction but it was from a different angle um and and I think a lot of people liked that um so I think we were we were lucky in when we came in um well I certainly was I'm not taking any any credit away from Vass because you know Vass's writing is great but I I feel I was very very lucky in terms of right time and right place yeah, I mean, I've I've been looking at all of this stuff. So if I might, if I might just mention a, a, a little plug for, I've just finished recording a crime writing course for Curtis Brown. You know, Curtis Brown, Brown, oh, yeah, Brown yeah. creative. You know, they've had some really big authors come out of there. Jane Harper, who came out of there recently, and so they've just asked. I've just finished recording the material for a writing crime fiction course, which will come out in October. And one of the things that I was forced to do it to, for, this, for the six odd modules is to reflect over this very long period of being not published and then being published. And the six or seven years that I've now been published, and Abir and I talk about this all of the time, you begin to realise the idiosyncrasies of the publishing industry. So, as he just said, they throw tons of money at debuts, mm-hmm. usually, uh, or at least tons of publicity at debuts because they, everyone's looking for the next big, the next big thing. Uh, and then the established big bestsellers, best-selling authors, they always get a load of publicity. But the ones in the middle who are on book two, three, four, five or six, um, they don't get so much uh, as much love. So it becomes a much harder, harder journey unless you've managed to somehow capture enough of an audience with your first book. And that might be nothing to do with you. It might simply be luck, as I've said, it might be the advertising budget that's been put behind you by your publisher or the right circumstances at the right time. But if you can just get that little platform and the foot in the door, then what most publishers will do is they will try and grow your career. Mm-hmm. And that's the important thing, that if you can slowly grow your career and keep improving the offerings that you're, you're putting out there, I think then you're onto a career that will last. And, you know, the truth is that we all know lots of authors who, who perhaps haven't had that luck uh, that little bit of luck with the first book and uh, their careers tailed off very abruptly and either it's finished or they've had to think up something new. And a lot yeah. of authors do reinvent themselves and, and do something new. So it's not the end of the journey even then. But Pass, it, would, would so, you say it's slightly easier with a series? Because both you and I have written series as our first, you know, first couple of books. Um, well, let me ask these, these, these chaps. I mean, they're, they're, they're uh, writers and readers and, and podcasters. What would you say? Well, I, I, I think... If you if you're picking up a debut author and you like the book, then you're more likely to go back for the second book. If if it is a series, I would say that that definitely helps, especially in a genre like crime. I think you know. I, I think if you establish a character that people enjoy, then they're always going to come back for that um, that sort of character. So I definitely think that makes a difference. But I also think, especially from speaking to to other guests on the podcast as well, that there seems to be, I mean, I think it's a pressure that's always been there on, on writers, but now more than ever with social media and stuff, that there's a there's a huge expectation on writers themselves to effectively be their own marketing 
department a lot of the time. Is that something that, that you've found as well? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, we were both lucky. I mean, my first book, they stuck me on BBC um, Breakfast on the Red Sofa, and that gave it a really good boost. They did a lot of other stuff. They put some ads on the underground, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so I was incredibly fortunate in that sense. Uh, but after that, after that, we've had to do a lot of the running. I mean, one of the reasons of, of us setting up the podcast mm-hmm. is, you know, one, because we wanted to say some things about the industry and there weren't that many people of, of our background doing uh, creative writing podcasts or, or lit- literary podcasts. But also, we also feel that it's a good way to to keep ourselves visible. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and then all sorts of other things. You know, I do blog posts and, you know, it, so many things that you are expected to do now. I, I think I think that in itself can be a, you know, it can be a barrier to some people because writers, you know, it, it's stereotypical to say it, but, you know, a lot of them are introverted. They don't want to engage in that sort of side of it. Many aren't, but, you know, a lot are. And to then have to create a social media presence where you're engaging with people all the time and all this sort of stuff can be a, it can put a, an extra pressure on top of actually writing a book. You know, yeah. it, it can stop some people, I think. Absolutely, Marco. I mean, um, it is. I mean, people expect you to do social media. Mm-hmm. At least, and social media only gets you so far. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are writers who've made it with that. I mean, um, Mick Heron, who's mm-hmm. a fantastic writer, he has very little social media presence he's never done oh, yeah until until lockdown he didn't even have a computer in his house he'd go to the library once <laughs> um so so yeah it's it's not a hard and fast rule but mm-hmm. it definitely makes a difference in this day and age um but as Vasim said you know there's a limit to what you can do and there's a whole different dimension which a publisher brings with you know in terms of interviews in newspapers tv radio all of that stuff the big ticket stuff um is very difficult to do you know you can get you can build a social media presence Mm -hmm. um but there is part of the market there and probably a significant part given the way that the audience for crime fiction skews older um that still pick up their recommendations from reviews in newspapers or on the telly or on the radio so um there's no there's no easy option these days. It's probably getting harder. I think it can definitely if if I suppose it works the other way in the sense that if you are good at it, you know, there are writers that I wouldn't have read, didn't know about even, but because Twitter has this community and you look for writers and you see people following other writers and you start following them and they constantly are on there, giving out advice, seem friendly and all this sort of stuff, you start to think, Oh, they they seem like a good good guy. I'll pick up their book so it can work but i think that's perhaps more the exception than the than the rule a lot of the time i think well i bet it has the opposite effect <laughs> exactly exactly every, every i didn't want I to tweet, say anything but every time i tweet somebody burns one of my books <laughs> are you going to say something Tarek? did you say that the, the the avenues that um that i see books being successful and i find are quite odd sometimes like supermarkets are such a massive boost for writers. And yeah, we've said this before, Marco, I can't imagine one time I've ever actually bought a book at a supermarket, but it seems to be, obviously it's something to do with advertising or it's just the fact that it's presence on a shelf. And um, and there seems to be so many old fashioned and newfangled ways of advertising and pushing books out that it's quite a complicated market now, more, more than ever was, I think, in terms of trying to get your, your book out there and visible in, in front of people. 
just just picking up on the point of supermarkets um it it's it seems to be that it's a different demographic that buy their books and yeah so I think it must I, be I would imagine that the both of you you're buying your books um either going into a bookshop or possibly online now there's there's another part of this the social spectrum that will you know go into a supermarket to do their weekly shop they'll pass an aisle and they'll they'll have an impulse purchase because they'll see something by an author that they like and they may not go into bookshops normally so um and bookshops do um supermarkets do make up huge volumes in terms of of sales for certain authors but but what you find and what's happening more and more is that the range of offering that you'll find in the supermarket is becoming extremely limited mm-hmm. um you know they they'll their philosophy is we will only you know we'll buy cheap and sell a lot mm-hmm. um, and if you're not already in that bracket of being a multi-million seller we probably won't stock you yeah. so you know if you're a, and this is a point that we make you know if you're sitting in the isle of sky or you're sitting in the isle of dogs in london you know very very different demographics yeah. You yep. probably still get the same 20 books on the shelf in a supermarket that you will in both places. Mm-hmm. Um, so supermarkets is a difficult one. It, it definitely makes a difference, uh, but it makes a difference. You, you need to you need to break in before you'll be stopped most mm-hmm. of the time. And um, what about, um, obviously both of you, you've already alluded to the fact that um, your the settings of your crime stories are, you know, unusual compared to, perhaps the the majority of things which is a unique thing and it can draw readers in and obviously it it works for you guys but does that bring its own pressures in some way in terms of you know do you have to spend a lot of time researching in a way that you might not if you were writing you know your standard bog standard crime fiction i guess that's yeah, well, we, we both write historical crime fiction at the moment, so we've talked about this uh, endlessly um, between ourselves. And um, when I write a series, my current series, uh, the Malabar House series, which is set just after partition and Indian independence in 1947. So the book, the first book, Midnight at Malabar House, starts in 1950. Now, for me, like for Abir, there was a reason that I wanted to explore that particular period. I lived in Mumbai uh, when it, uh, and I wanted to go back to when it was still Bombay. And I also wanted to look at the roots of modern India. A lot of those uh, roots were established just after independence, because after 300 years of British presence, India was given back the reins and had to decide what kind of democracy it was going to be, what kind of country, what kind of direction it was going to move in. And it was quite a turbulent period. So for me, it was the backdrop that was the most important thing. And that, of course, requires a lot of um, research. And then the trick as Abir and I have, are constantly saying, is to know what to leave out so that you don't bog down your your, your crime story um, or give your characters too much of a burden to carry when really what they're really supposed to be carrying is the is the crime narrative. Yeah, totally. I've gone the other way. Um, Vasim won uh, the dagger for the his best historical novel this year and I decided, that's it, no point in me writing any more historical <laughs> Uh, not for now so I'm writing what I'm writing now is is modern day stuff um just looking at the research it is different I mean there's there's less research done in libraries there's more research done online um the the book that I'm writing at the moment set in the US uh like yours Tarek um so that that entails a very different form of research a lot more cultural research involved there compared to the the sort of cultural research that you have to do 
when you come from a culture. Um, so it, it's different. I wouldn't say there's any more, but it's, it's definitely a different form of research that's required. And, and as Vasim says, quite often the battle is deciding what to keep out. So for me, you know, I spent three days um, researching the Calcutta sewer system. And, and because <laughs> I'd done that research, I had to show everyone how smart I was. <laughs> I had to put it all in the book. And of course, my editor just scrapped it all out. It doesn't, it doesn't move the plot forward and nobody cares. I think that's the, that's the rule of thumb, isn't it? If you write a particular scene and then you go back to it after a couple of days and you read that scene, and by the end of that scene, you're feeling as if you're wading through yeah. information rather than the scene moving forward, yeah. then, then it's a good bet that you've got too much I mean, so, so in some cases we've had those uh, the, the, the written historical fiction that always come back to this thing of um, authenticity against accuracy. Yeah. So you can be, obviously you can write something as ex perfectly as happened, but it, it, it may not, it might be very dry and it's more important to try and get the, the feel yeah. of the period in, in, in place. Honestly, you do not need to get everything right. I mean, we've both yeah. had people write to us about minor minor corrections. I mean, one guy wrote to me, he loved, he read the book and he, and, he, and he said, yeah, I really enjoyed this book. And he, you know, he went through it in long-winded detail about everything he liked. And then he got to his true reason for writing. He said, however, <laughs> on page 82, you mentioned Persis is cheap. So Persis is the, is the, is the female police uh, officer who's the, the, the main protagonist of the Malabar House series. And he said, but you've given your Jeep windows when it's obvious that that Jeep did not have windows. <laughs> that was one of the best emails I ever wrote. <laughs> He was right. I'll give him that. I, I checked it myself afterwards, and he was right. But it's it's so true, though. I mean, what I mean, you're not writing or reading a factual novel. It, uh, it it's not about you're not sitting there saying I want to learn what it was like in India in that point of time. It's a I've always looked at like a kind of Robert Harris thing. You know, I read it and it's it's set in Pompeii or ancient Rome or whatever, and um, I want to get a flavour of what the time was like. I want to get enough facts and details that I feel like it's real and it's authentic and I, I maybe will learn something that I didn't know before and that's great but I ultimately I also just want to have a really good fast-paced story that draws me along and if I want to learn more about it then I'll go and read well, something else. Here's, here's the lie at the heart of all of historical fiction which is basically you've got a person a protagonist who's out of time you know you, you mentioned yeah. probably the the most uh, the archetypal case you know Robert Harris's Pompeii the guy speaks like a modern person. He does a yeah. modern job. Yeah. yeah. You know, so he's, he, you know, and he's reflecting our own sensibilities back at us. And that's what our characters do. You know, uh, Vasim's character and my characters, they speak in somewhere between the English of the time and the English of today. Enough to give you a feel for it, but not enough to take you out of that bubble that you're creating um, for the reader. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I suppose, historical fiction in that sense is no different than, uh, you know, a piece of science fiction or something. You, 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 you're, you're viewing it through a lens and you're wanting to tell a story that can reflect aspects of society now, but in whatever whatever time period you're, you're wanting to set it in, or at least a lot of the time, I think the best ones do that. Absolutely. You're writing for an audience today mm -hmm. um, and your characters and your stories reflect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really? And what about your your um, your writing styles in terms of you know do you plan a lot or do you kind of is it a lot of pantsing you know what's the, what's your what's your style? Go on, Vass. Vass, Vass has written six thousand words before you woke up this morning. 
every he's, morning. He's not kidding. He's not kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I do plan a lot um, because I have to be quite organised because I, you know, I, I still like doing my day job, although it's very flexible now. Uh, I work at a university. It's a crime research centre, so it's quite useful as well to be there. And I, of course, still have aspirations to play cricket for England, so I play <laughs> summer weekend so I have to be quite organized so I do tend to get up I write I plan the novels meticulously so that by the time I, I take about three or four months doing the research and the planning and I write out every scene in you know in short form so that before I write the first words I know exactly where I'm going and because I've done that it means that I can easily write a thousand words early in the morning and then knock off for the day and do whatever else I want to do yeah nobody likes you very much <laughs> I do I do, I have to admit, I do, once I finish at around about 6.30, 7, 8 in the morning, I do send the WhatsApp group a message saying, you know, get up, you lazy gits, I've already written a thousand words. The fact you finish writing at half six, seven in the morning, I mean, what time do you start? I'm an insomniac. I'm an insomniac, so I get up at about five, six, sometimes I'll be up at six and I'll finish by half seven or eight. I mean, that's that's the dream, and then you've got the whole day just to... Just to send text messages, how brilliant he is, (laughs) how organised he is. I'm just encouraging you guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, my my style is slightly different. Um, so I will I will basically um, you know, I'll, I won't do anything before the kids are out the door. That's the first thing. So, and then it's about finding where they've left the computer for the night. <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. Um, in terms of planning, I tried to pants it. I tried to pants it for the fourth book, and it just went wrong. <laughs> And so I had to go back, but I, I tend to do a skeleton. So I'll write a two or three page skeleton of what I think is going to happen. And then I'll try and flesh out the first third of that in a wee bit more detail, maybe another five, six pages. And then I'll get bored and I'll have to actually start writing. So and then so that's how I tend to do it. I'll have an idea of the start and I'll have an idea of the finish and the main action points. But a lot of that might change. But then I'll, I'll sketch out a third of it and then I'll write that third and that'll give me more idea of what the next third will look like and so on until we get to the end. And it may have no real, you know, the book may have no resemblance to what I'd initially expected it to look like, um, except the start point and the end point are probably pretty similar. Not always. I mean, for the third book, it turned out that somebody I expected to die ended up being quite, you know, a villainous <laughs> character in the end who didn't, you know, he was behind everything. So it, my style's not quite as regimented and certainly not as efficient as Vasta's. When you're writing a series, do you do you plan more than one book in advance at all? But seems probably plan the next twenty years. I don't know. <laughs> well, I had to submit three synopses for the the, the three book deal for this mm. particular series, uh, the initial deal. Uh, so, in that sense, yes. Um, I mean, if I might be permitted a plug for my current book, the mm. ones that's just come out last is, week. Is that is that permitted? I don't think well, it is. I'm we'll we'll cut this bit out. <laughs> so, it, uh, it's, with with every second book in a series, there's always that fear that if the first book has been reasonably successful, and as Abia mentioned, Midnight at Malabar House has won the historical dagger. Uh, just Did I mention that? <laughs> you were kind enough to mention that. I'm glad I mean, you mentioned it as well. Though. I have to pay you afterwards, <laughs> I know. But, uh... what, what, what was it? Just remind us, because I missed that bit. <laughs> anyway, we're being serious <laughs> now because we're, we're passing on a, a lesson while pu- pushing my book. Um, <laughs> so, um, The Dying Day, which is the second book in the series. So, with that one, it's... Um, it did take a bit longer, I have to admit, because I was very, I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to replicate 
the enthusiasm that I had brought to the first book in the series. And I think that probably is true for most people writing second books in a series. But the plot that I that I uh, decided to go with was one that had been uh, with me, growing inside me for maybe 20 odd odd years when I from when I lived in in India so it's um, a cop a 600 year old copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy uh, goes missing from Bombay's Asiatic Society and it's a real artifact that that actually exists there in India and Persis my lead character is called in to investigate and then there's a series of, of coded riddles that she has to follow so I suppose the lesson here is that you can borrow from from other other writings in the crime, crime genres I mean I purposely was inspired for this particular book by the Da Vinci Code, and mm. I'm a fan, and I know a beer is uh, perhaps yeah, a little I'm, bit. I'm impressed that you stole it with such abandon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan Brown hasn't hasn't sued me oh, yet. So. No. <laughs> he hasn't got my email yet. Just give him a week. So, no, I think uh, I personally, I think that this the crime fiction genre is so broad. It's so broad, mm. and there are so many corners and nooks and crannies where you can tuck your your particular idea into so that it, in some ways it reflects some of the stuff that's gone before, but then you make it your own and hopefully you find, you find a market for it. I, I should say I'm reading The Dying Day right now and it's brilliant. It really is. It, it pains Stop me it. to Stop say it. that, but Stop it's it. true. Um, just, just from my angle, I, I never plan a book before it's time to write it because you know my books, generally they have to reflect whatever's annoying me at that particular time. So all of the books have are essentially allegorical. They, they, they talk about things that are upsetting me or things that I want to put right in the world. So the fourth book, um, Death in the East, it was written just after Brexit. And, and it's as much about you know British society and our view, our attitude towards immigrants as it is you know a, a series set in India. You know, mm-hmm. half of the book is set in the East End of London in 1905 um, in the Jewish East End because it want, I wanted to reflect my thoughts about what was happening in Britain when I was writing it. The fifth one, which is coming out um, in November, a lot of it deals with Hindu-Muslim violence, but really it's, it's my stab at what's happening in India at the moment with this Hindu nationalism. Um, so, so whatever I'm writing, I mean, I want to do the series all the way to 1947. I'm right now, I'm at 1923 or 24, <laughs> right? And I'm from Glasgow, so my life expectancy is limited, <laughs> right? So but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I've got some themes that I know I want my characters to, to deal with. And there will be some historical incidents that I will want to talk about, like the Salt March, Gandhi Salt March and, and other things like that. But the actual plot of the novel, I will not know until I come to write it, because it will be dealing with whatever is bugging me about the world as it is today. And do you want to tell us the name of them, since since this seems oh, to be his book? It's called um, The Shadows of Men, and that's out in, in uh, November. Thank you, Marco. That was really kind of you for that. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't like sort of, you know, <laughs> We should also mention, of course, that um, A Death in the East is being shortlisted for the Theakston Crime Novel of the Year, which is being announced on the 22nd of July. So next week, 22nd yeah. of July. Are you yeah. excited? I am nervous. I, I don't think I'm going to win. There's some phenomenal books on that shortlist, uh, including... Oh, nonsense. You've got as much chance as anyone else. I don't know. There's some really good books on that shortlist. Um, so yeah, it, it'd be lovely. It'd be lovely to win. Uh, it'd be very nice. I feel I feel a wee bit like Ivan Lendl at Wimbledon because I've been I've been shortlisted. This is a third <laughs> shortlist, and I tend to go and just clap if somebody else. Goes, 
I think they know I'm a reliable clapper. Um, <laughs> you better not say that where Ivan Lendl can actually hear you because, you know, he yeah. had a reputation. Oh, yeah, the man slagged off Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> you're trying... yeah, but she looks like she can take a joke. Ivan oh, Lendl yeah. looks like she can take a joke. I think I think you've ruled out two guests on your podcast already. <laughs> or have we? You know, you say that. But, you know, right of reply, Ivan. Yeah. If you're out there, I feel your pain. Come on the show. <laughs> if, but uh, just going back to the process thing, I mean, uh, you've you've told us how you sort of you'll get your drafts done. But are you are you are either of you people that will revise as you go and have a pretty clean first draft that you're happy to send out oh, at that point? Oh, don't, don't get him started. He's just, what do you I mean, think? <laughs> like that? Yes, yes, is the answer, yes. yes is the answer. I absolutely hate having to do revisions yeah. afterwards. And I hate being asked by my editor to do revisions. So I, uh, I really, really go to town on editing as I go with every, every day, every, chapter every scene so that by the time i send something into the editor uh, it really doesn't come back with many edits after but, that. but do you do that so when you sit down to write do you like review the what you've written the day before or is absolutely. that yeah, yeah that's what you do yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah it won't come as any surprise i don't do that at all <laughs> um, i think partly is because i don't really have any confidence in myself and you know if, if i read what i wrote the previous day i mean like <laughs> Right, putting this in the bin, putting that. In the bin. Um, I don't know. So I, I will, I will write the whole thing, or I'll write as much of it as I can, and then I will edit it. I'll, I will read it through. And I'll edit it before I send it to my editor. Um, and with the Wyndham series, as I've been going along, you know, the edits that I get back have uh, been less and less. Um, I remember the first lot of edits I got my first book. It was just covered in red ink. And I just, <laughs> just wanted to jump in the. In the <laughs> Um, I should point out that, you know, this is the, I've just had my edits back for this standalone thriller, this American one, and it's very much like that first book. <laughs> it's covered in red ink, and I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Um, but it's a learning experience. That's how you've got to look at it. You've got, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm back at a stage similar to where I was when I was writing that first book. I'm writing something completely different, and I'm learning. Um, you know, when this is finished... I would say that I would hope that this is the best thing that I've been able to write to date um, because I've got fantastic editors who are guiding me and, and, and te- you know, I'm learning all the time. And I would hope that even now, even before, even with all the red ink, I would hope it's a better first draft than what I wrote three years ago. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it does feel a wee bit soul destroying when you get, when you put everything into something and it comes back and they're like, well, do you know what? How about we change the central premise of the book? <laughs> well, how do you deal with the notes? You know, because you get these notes back and you think, is it a case of, we've talked about before, we said the best thing to do is just to put it in a drawer for two, three days. You go back to it first, you think, nah, that's all crap. And then as time goes on, you say, oh, I'll accept that and accept that. And then suddenly you agree with everything. Well, the way you're right in terms of I've always agreed with 99% of what my editors tell me because they know what they're doing and I'm just an idiot from Hamilton, right? So um, that's the first thing to say. The second thing is um, when when I was hit by these huge amounts of edits and you don't know where to start, I I sort of reverted to my finance training. I I responded with a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) My editor, my editor at the time just went, nobody's ever done that before. Nobody's come back with a PowerPoint presentation. And, but that was my way of, of, of working through it, of working, of taking this, you know, this great punch to the face and breaking it down into smaller chunks. 
I could deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about what works for you, I think. If, if you get that situation, break it down. Break it down in a way that you're comfortable with. And for me, that was just going back to my training as, as, as an accountant, basically, in terms of dealing with a document and, and breaking it down yeah. and responding to each point. And- of course, Vasim never gets edits like that. So. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> But I, I was no, I, of course I get notes. I, I, I get notes. Um, I, they're not extensive, and the reason is is not less to do with me than the fact that before I begin the novel, I tend to write a re- reasonably comprehensive synopsis, and then I'll pass it back and forth a bit, so we have some agreement over where the plot is is going overall. Because the worst thing for me is to write seventy odd thousand words and then find uh, that you know the ending doesn't quite work uh, because nobody likes it nobody will agree with how it's going to pan out so i'd rather have most of that in place beforehand and uh, i think there may be a difference in 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 answer to this one as well but do you ever get to that point in a novel where you you're sort of stuck and not sure where to go next uh because i've spent three or four months planning and i planned out every single scene it doesn't usually happen in that way it might happen during the planning phase yeah where you know you're 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 wrestling with a particular idea and you just can't you just can't get it you just can't get it get the get the trick because with crime novels the most important thing to to realize is that there's got to be these multiple layers of mystery mm-hmm. throughout the novel not just the big mystery of who committed the murder if you know most crime novels are, are do involve a murder but the little things like where you've seeded the clues what's the mystery behind this clue how are you going to resolve it is it going to be a red herring and sometimes you can get bogged down in those smaller details rather than the bigger one, because the bigger one will be quite clear from the very beginning. You know who, who committed the crime, you know why they committed the crime. And generally that doesn't tend to change unless you have a brainwave halfway through writing your, your novel. Uh, but yeah, I do sometimes get stuck on those little points because I want them to be, I want them to be surprising, but also they have to make logical sense within the overall structure of your plot. Sorry, sorry, Tarek. No, I would just ask a quick, a quick question of how do you balance um, all that future planning with not getting bored when you actually come to write it? Because that's what I'd be worried about was that I would suck all the fun out. Well, I find that um, I do a lot of the, the yeah, I, I haven't, I, I'm a person who never has any fun. <laughs> that's so true. No, I love, I love, I love this the therapy. He should be paying you for therapy. <laughs> No, I, I, I find the act of writing itself re, uh, to be fun. And I'm always enthusiastic about writing. I'm never, ever sad. I don't really get it when, when writers um, get really mopey and down on the whole act of, of writing, even if you're not quite published or if things are not going so well. The only purpose and reason for sitting down in front of your laptop to write is because you are at that moment in time feeling really good about writing and enthusiastic and and hopeful for what might happen on the page once you start getting your brain into gear yeah uh, what i would say is right if you're ever feeling down don't go to vasim for a pick me up because he'll slap you you basically you'll get a verbal slap from him um <laughs> only to tell you to to, to to be enthusiastic to just yeah. you know to to have fun with what's what you... wrong with you just get a grip just tough, write the thing tough love it, it tough love. But I read a I read a lot of literary fiction and one of my favorite literary authors is called John Irving and he wrote um you know Hotel New Hampshire Cider House Rules etc cetera, etc cetera. 
And when he was a younger writer and, you know, down in the dumps because he wasn't getting anywhere with his writing and it's all he ever wanted to do. He fought in he met, Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he, he weirdly, he met one of his idols, not me, but he met one of his, his, his writing idols at a workshop or something. And he, and he told him about his problem. And he said, look, I'm thinking of packing it all in. And the writer said to him, look, what you've got to do is stop saying to yourself that one day you will become a writer. Wake up each morning and say, you are a writer. You may not be published. You may not be successful yet, but you are a writer because you are, you are acting as a writer. You're doing the things that writers do. You know, you're coming up with ideas and you're putting them on, on paper and you're enjoying yourself, well, for the most part, while doing it. Yeah, totally. Basim is right. Basim is right. And, you know, it doesn't matter. We're all on this journey because we all want to write. Uh, none of us are the, are the finished article. Um, Vasim's probably closer to it than anybody. But, um, <laughs> seriously, we're all we're all on this journey. We're just at different stages on the route. That's it. But do you ever get that moment of being stuck? For me, it's 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 different. I mean, I, I take on board what Vas says about it's the smaller things. Mm. Um, for me, half the fun is is putting people or my characters in difficult situations. Um, and then trying to figure out how to get them out of it. Because if that's that's where the hooks are, that's what's going to turn the pages. Yeah. Um, the way I describe it, it's like, it's like trying to do three jigsaws at once and you've got the pieces of all three jigsaws in one box. So it's about moving the pieces about and trying to make them fit. And if they don't fit in that particular puzzle, move over to another storyline or whatever. So not every piece that you, you think of will fit into the narrative that you're writing. And then you've got to find another piece that does. Um, it, it, it's kind of weird. It's like, so for example, you know, I, let, let's say my protagonist, protagonist needs a car, right? They haven't got a car. How are they going to get a car? Well, they're going to steal a car. How are they going to steal a car? Well, they're not going to break a window because that's what everybody does. And they're not going to hotwire it. Let's think of a different way. What if he worked uh, a garage 10 years ago or whatever? What if there's an impound lot? How do we break into that impound lot? What do we need to do to get out without anybody realizing the car has been stolen? All of these things are, are the problems that I like playing with and coming up with new ideas. You know, it, it's... It's it's part of the plot, but it's a very minor part of the yeah. plot. But it's, it still needs to be refreshing. It still needs to be interesting. Um, so that's where I often get stuck in the sense that there won't be an immediate answer to it. It's something that you play around. You try three or four different yeah. ways of getting out of that, and you choose the way that works best. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying about this. The sort of small things you can have the overall idea and plot sort of in your head and worked out, but. Yeah, I, I'm very bad for sort of getting hung up on some small details sometimes, and you can kind of get stuck in that little, little bit what, going what round and do, round. What do you do when you switch off? Do you go for a walk? Or do you do the dishes? Do you do the garden? Uh, well, see, I, I, would, I normally write uh, in the evening, so um, normally what I would do in that situation is sit there, try and work out, <laughs> work out what to do, get frustrated and go to bed, and then sometimes <laughs> I'll wake up the next day and it'll hit me. The next well, that, morning or whatever. If it, you know. if it doesn't work, you know, go for a walk. Go, yeah. um, go, go, rake leaves. It's when your brain's doing something else. Yeah. Play cricket. Get out for zero like me. <laughs> Throw the bat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could try that. <laughs> so, oh, there's a, there's a dog now in your house with Marco. So you could, you could take, take the dog out yeah, for that's a true. two a.m. walk. Are your dog train. writing your novel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Send him around my house. <laughs> send, send the man who has an elephant write his novels. God. 
Can you tell tell them the story about why you stopped? Well, you haven't stopped, but why you're you're less keen on writing the stories with the elephant in it? <laughs> what, what's the answer? Well, you know, he's probably forgotten, but basically, he realised that having an elephant in all your scenes isn't very good logistically. Do you not have to go up an escalator at some point in the shopping mall? Oh yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's only a baby elephant. This elephant, and yeah. people expect this elephant. And I've got to put this elephant in situations where an elephant wouldn't. Yeah, you're, talk, you're talking about the first series, yeah. 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 yeah, that elephant still gets me. I get so much mail from around the world about that damn baby <laughs> elephant. I mean, it was only supposed to be. It's only a symbol. I mean, it doesn't talk or fly or solve the solve the crimes. It's just that the, the main character. Shopping mall. Well, the main character is so grim and rigid and honest that I, I needed to alleviate his his grimness by giving him the responsibility of looking after this little elephant that he's inherited. Um, but anyway, yeah, I still get loads of mail about that, uh, that elephant. People, you know, when he's making a comeback. But at the moment, I'm doing the historical series now, so it's uh, not likely soon. And uh, you guys also have your podcast, Red Hot Chili Writers, as you mentioned before. And you've had some pretty big guests on that. Chris Whitaker, Val McDermott, Dean Kuntz, Richard Osman. What's yeah. your secret to getting these big guys on? We've got, great, we've got big guests on, Tarek. Oh, we've got great, great guests. This is probably the biggest guest we've had on so far, <laughs> Back, what sort of a question Mar- is that? Mar- Marco, Marco rescued. Marco rescued that one. <laughs> you know Neither of us felt insulted till Mark pointed it out. <laughs> it's very, it's very, it's very simple. We just, we just guilt them into it. I mean, we're too brown, brown or because we prey on that white guilt. Yeah, pretty much what it is. We're going to turn us down seriously in the current climate. If you come on, people will call you a racist. <laughs> No, no, that didn't happen. I, I should say he was—he was, he was a. face your mural. Um, yes, um, we've just—we've just been lucky. I mean, we've been going a couple of years now, and it's—I think it's a wee bit different. Uh, is the first thing, and and we should say that you know Vass and I are the the hosts, but we have a team of you know four or five other writers who come on regularly: Imran Mahmood, A. Dand, uh, Alex Khan, uh, Aisha Malik. So, so we have a core team. It's just that Vass organises everything, which, and and I'm the closest one geographically to him, so um, that's that's why we end up hosting it. But I think, um, I think the answer is that it builds, it grew, it grew slowly. So we started off with, uh, you know, not the not the Richard Osmonds or, or Val. No, but to be fair, we started we started with big authors. Actually, no, we did. Sorry, did we? Sorry, I've got that wrong. You cut that crap out. Just. <laughs> We started with with a good friend of uh, friend of ours, Anne Cleves, uh, and then Ruth Ware, and then Claire McIntosh. So we started off with a bang, uh, and then I think what happened was that gradually we, with our podcast, I mean yours is very specifically about the craft of writing, Mm -hmm. and you do it wonderfully. Uh, Ours is a little bit irreverent in the sense that we're we're looking at issues of diversity in the industry, but we're not standing on a soapbox and screaming about it. We're just bringing in lots of these guests who are, as you, as you, as you've noticed, a lot of them are white uh, authors. They're not, we're not necessarily picking authors of color all the time. And we're having, we're having fun with them. We do quizzes. We did a quiz with Richard Osman, for instance. I always um, win the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. well, I, think, so, I think we've also been lucky in terms of lockdown because lockdown has sort of changed the, yeah. the way people you know, advertise or, or have closed the options down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're getting authors who maybe wouldn't have come on before because they were doing book tours or whatever. And now everything's online. Um, and so I think we, we've, we've benefited from that. 
Um, we've also benefited from the fact that we can just call up some of our mates now. And that's the great thing about the crime writing, uh, crime fiction writing fraternity. Everybody is really genuine and nice. There's so many people who will help you out, who don't need to give you the time of day, but will go out of their way to help you. Um, and, and, and that's that's the wonderful thing about it. And you'll both find this. Um, and have you noticed something? We, we seem to have a touch of a, a, a rub of the green, if you, if you like, if nothing else. I mean, we had Mike Craven on and he won the gold dagger. We had Chris Whittaker on and he's won the gold, gold dagger now. Tarek, yeah. This is it. This is it. This is. I'll be, I'll be the exception that proves the rule. Don't worry. If you <laughs> no, no, no. We've had you on, and we'll have Marco on as soon as his book gets yeah. published. So, excellent. Well, we're still waiting to hear back from Aaron Sorkin, but um, I'll, I'll maybe chase him up. I just, I just, I just use, use some guilt on him. That'd be fine. Yeah. Marco, see what you can do as well. I can see you've got your Italian poster up. Your oh yeah, yeah. I'm uh, enjoying that at the moment. You're a double winner. You're Scottish and Italian. You can't be a happier no, exactly. person. Exactly. The only two teams England didn't beat. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're still a bit raw, guys. Come sorry, on. sorry, sorry. Sorry, Bas. Um, so, so what? What's next for you both? What, what have you got lined up? What have we got lined up, Bas? Well, I'm plugging the dying day as we speak, trying to get as many people to buy it uh, uh, as possible. Um, so when, when, when's that out? <laughs> Last week. <laughs> it's out now. I mean, it's, it's going well. I'll be honest. It's, it's, it's going well. I'm getting some reviews in the press and lots of the uh, stuff that's coming back is really super positive. So, um, and I, hate to, be- I hate to say it, it probably is your best work yet and you've just won an award for the last one. So um, it's, going, it's, going, it's going well. Um, I have to submit the third one in a, in a, in a couple of months. So that's where so I am. My quote, uh, which I hope is going to be on the cover, is so good it makes me sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's going to be. Yeah, you're going to put that on the cover of the hardback, right? Or Wait, like is that, that in regards to my face, or? <laughs> <laughs> uh, mate, you can use it in whatever context you like. The port, port, important part is it makes me sick. Right? <laughs> um, but no, you should seriously, guys. It's a fantastic book, and um, it's going to do. It's going to do great. It should do if there's any justice. What Thank What you. about you? What have you got coming up? Um, so yeah, I've got um, the fifth book, Shadows of Men, which is out this November. Um, hopefully things will be back to normal by then. We can do a wee bit of a book tour, um, which would be lovely. It's been so long. Um, after that, I'm working on this uh, standalone, which seems it's going to take a wee bit longer than I thought it was. Um, but after that, there'll be another uh, Windham and Banerjee novel and then another standalone um, and then, and then we'll see if anybody's still willing to pay me money to write. <laughs> and we, would either of you ever want to write uh, in a different medium, like script writing or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I've done that already, and not really successfully though. I've, I've written two movie scripts which didn't didn't sell. I've written a TV series which is out at the moment in India, Netflix India. Cool. Uh, we haven't had fantastic. a. It hasn't been picked up yet, so it's, it's far from fantastic. But. The act of doing it was because uh, <laughs> I love I love screen I love uh, I love film, so the act of doing it was quite uh, a good learning experience. Nice. I mean, my problem, as, you, as you've seen, is that I'm not the most organised of people compared to Vass. Um, so I, I've not. I would love to do some screenwriting one day. Um, I've just not got the bandwidth. Uh, I've just not got the time right now. Um, as long as people are buying the books, um, and that's you know basically my living now. 
I'm, I'm going to concentrate on those as long as I, you know, as long as I have to, I have to grow what I've got. If if at some stage, you know, um, things change, there's a, you know, whatever. I, I'd love to to write something one day for the screen, but that's a that's a different skill set. That's different talent, yeah, totally. I think. Um, and that would take a lot of learning. Cool. Work on a on a on a on an erotic novel together, Fifty Shades of Brown. Can you imagine how brilliant that would be? That would probably be the best thing ever written. Uh, if you can get the chapters done by seven, I'll sort of edit it. <laughs> we could call a hero Marco because that's a fairly sexy name. Yeah. And we're both from we're both from um, you know the world of finance. We could call it Love Between the Spreadsheets. <laughs> Think, guys. I like that's, it. That's not off the top of your head. You've put a lot of thought into that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of thought into everything, Mark. <laughs> Everything's scripted. <laughs> what was the last book that you read, Fasim? Uh It's actually... I'm in the process of reading it. I've just got to the last chapter. It's... um. Oh God, I'm going to make a hash of his name now. Uh, ask, ask him. Let me get his name up. Okay. It's a Finnish. It's a Finnish name. I'm going to make an. You haven't actually name. read anything, have you? This is it. You're just. No, no, I haven't. It's called the rabbit. It's called the rabbit. The last the rabbit was the dying day by me. <laughs> Thank you for that extra plug for the dying day, which we haven't really mentioned. Um, no, it's uh, it's called the Rabbit Factor by Anti oh, Anti Tuomainen Tuomainen. Okay. I don't it's know got a remember. great cover. I haven't read that book yet. I apologise, Anti, if I've uh, completely mangled your, your finished name. Uh, but it's a terrific book. It's the one that's just sold to Steve Carroll, Carroll's production company. Right, He's cool. going to star in a version of it. It's a, oh, cool. it's a crime novel with a humorous, dark, darkly humorous bent to it. Brilliant. So I've just finished reading again the second time um, The Less Dead by Denise Miner, uh, which is her latest book, and it's set... Uh, um, in Glasgow, uh, and it's about a woman who um, is tracing her birth family and finds out that her mother was a prostitute that was murdered back in the day. And it's it's brilliant. It's, it, what I always say about Denise Miner's writing is if you want to learn how to, who to draw characters and to do speech and to get into what people are really like, you should read Denise Miner. Um, I don't think anybody is a better... Um, a viewer of people or people or characteristics and observer of characteristics than Denise Miner. Nice. And now I'm reading The Dying Day by. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what about the last film that you both watched? Gosh, that's a uh, one. Uh, I can tell you that because I watch a lot of film. Yeah, I watch, uh, I'm, I'm re watching um, There Will Be Blood. The, the oh, movie. nice. Yeah. yeah. And, for those of you who don't know, absolutely terrific film about an oil prospector, prospector in the early 1900s, played by Daniel Day-Lewis for his second of three Oscars, the only man to have done that. And who, a guy who really liked his milkshake. <laughs> is, that, is that right? <laughs> oh, no, Vasim doesn't drink milkshakes. It's got to be just plain straight up milk. No, I'm talking about the film. Have you even oh, seen right, the movie, right. oh, It's a pivotal stuff. end scene with the milkshake. I'm, Spoiler. I'm, right, yeah. Spoiler. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, haven't got, I haven't got to the end again. Yet. Oh, well done, Tara. Oh, sorry, I've ruined it. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I watched it. I watched it when it first came out in the oh, cinema. Right, okay, it's, okay. it's quite a few years, maybe a decade I, later now. So has it changed? 
Well, we haven't got to the milkshake scene. All right, okay, well, we'll find out. Um, for me, I haven't watched a film in ages. It's not at the cinema, so I can't answer that. But what I will do is give you another book, which uh, is written by somebody you've had on, which I think is probably one of the best books of the decade, definitely the best book I've read this year, which is I Know What I Saw by Imran Mahmood, uh, a fantastic book, I have to say. Um, again, it reminds me of Denise Minor in terms of just the depth of this book. It's literary. It's about a guy who is, you know, once worked in finance and is now homeless, and he's convinced he's seen, he's witnessed a murder, but nobody will believe him. And it's a beautifully written book. Um, so I, yep. I, I'll fantastic. go with that. I want to see that as a film. There you go. Nice. Excellent. And the uh, last TV show that you watched or are watching? Well, that's a good question. Lass? Oh, um, my wife and I, I, I are binge-watching... Um, oh, God, what's her face? The, the, do you want the some, one time to, do I some time to just find a programme on... <laughs> no, no, it's the one with the, the sweater, the lady with the sweater. The Killing? The Killing. The Killing. Yeah. <laughs> First, the, the three, the, all three series. We've, we've just finished binge-watching all three series. Nice. Excellent. I never watched the original. I never watched the American remake. Oh I'm no, you should watch the terrible game. like that. Yeah. Wait, I didn't wait. know there was an American remake. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, right. but, yeah, yeah. The American one's good. The Danish one's still better. Okay, I will. I will give it a shot because the woman, Sophia, Sophia, what's her? I can't remember. Yeah. The main actress is brilliant. Sophia yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I do need to watch that. No, it's it's the both versions are brilliant. To be fair. Um, as for me, me and the wife are watching the Jelaine Maxwell thing at the, at the moment. Oh, right. yeah. Is it any good? It's all right. It's it's a documentary series on Sky, and it's it's good um, in that you get an insight into the world of these people. You know how yeah. she went from the daughter of one very rich, rather uh, unscrupulous man who you know ended up dying under really odd circumstances. Um, to suddenly finding herself, you know, with this new father figure, almost another powerful, unscrupulous man. Um, so that's it's really interesting. In terms of um, TV drama, the last thing that we watched was The Hour, which oh, is yeah. the sort of period drama uh, set at the BBC. <clears throat> that's the one with um, the guy from The Wire. I can't remember his name. Yeah, ben Wishaw and a couple of other folk in that. Um, really interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah, those were the two things recently. Nice. What about you guys? Um, what have you been watching? I, I, I've, I'm currently watching uh, Underground Railroad on Amazon. Oh, right. Yeah, is, from that, the Colson White. Yeah, yeah, I loved the book. Uh, obviously a hard read and it's an equally, if not harder watch, but it's brilliant, like really brilliantly made. Yeah, Definitely I need to watch that. We'll be watching um, season two of For All Mankind. Uh, which is like it's a it's on Apple TV. It's one of the three shows which is worth watching on Apple TV at the moment, and it's basically a retelling of the space race. But if Russia got to the moon first, and so it's a kind of alt history, oh, what would right. have happened? Other and it's it's brilliant. If you like sci-fi stuff, whatever yeah, kind of alt yeah. history, it's definitely worth checking out. So, what are you two reading at the moment? Other than the dying day, uh, yeah. Other than the dying day, um, <laughs> I, uh, I I've just finished reading. Um, I went on a sort of binge of Blake Crouch novels because I, I was trying to find the authors that are similar to what I've written to, to put in comparison letters. Um, but I, I, so I read his most recent ones, which I quite enjoyed, Recursion and Dark Matter, and then I went back to Wayward. He did the Wayward Pines trilogy. Fine. I stopped after the first. 
Yeah. I, I felt that way with the, what was it? The, I can't remember what the series, you know, the, the, the Expanse series. Yes. Mm-hmm. Burns and stuff like that. I thought it was, it started really good, but the fourth book was just tough going. Mm-hmm. Really, really tough going. I just gave up at that point. I've just finished um, Project Hail Mary, the guy who wrote The Martian. Andy Weir. Um, Andy, Andy Weir, Weir yeah. yeah. Um, it's good. It's much better than the second one, which I didn't like at all. The one set in the moon and uh, Artemis. This one's much, yeah, Artemis. Yeah, that was more yeah, of a YA. More of a YA. Yeah, yeah, it didn't really work for me. But this is much more like the Martian, in which it's a kind of a guy trying to solve, trying to survive using science, basically. But it's not. It's not quite. I don't know. It feels too similar to the Martian, but not new in the art. It's and a lot of it's solving problems with made up technology stuff. So it's not even like. Because the Martian you know was like he was using actual science to solve stuff, whereas this is using. You know what happened there? That's a classic case of a writer having a huge success with, uh, with their first book, uh, and then deciding they can go off and write whatever the hell they want, and then getting a slap from their publisher and saying, "Just write the same as your first book again." Totally, I think it was exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. You laugh, Marco, but it happens all the time. Have you read The Dying Day? <laughs> what, I haven't even heard of this book. <laughs> you have now. <laughs> I mean, clearly, the pair of you are big sci-fi fans like I am. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Looking very much looking forward to the final expanse mm. season. Yeah, yeah. In terms of books, but um, the very, very last thing we ever do is a super quick fire, either or. So there's no right answer in any of these apart from one. And uh, the first one is. Go for Denise Mina or Val McDermott. I, I really can't answer that. <laughs> You'll get us in trouble if you make us answer questions like that. <laughs> we can't. We can't uh, oh, we can do one each. We'll do one each. There you go. I'll yeah. say okay. Val McDermott. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 there you go. You split it. Or we can, we can just smoosh them together and it can be Val I Mina. Think, I don't think you want to do that, mate. <laughs> Denise McDermott. Denise McDermott. Denise McDermott. Denise McDermott. Right, nice. What about uh, uh, US crime fiction or UK crime fiction? Uh, on screen, US always. The Wire, uh, Sopranos, etc. Yeah. Hand down beats anything the UK can produce. See, I'd turn it around. Not just to you know cover all bases, but I'm really <laughs> enjoying um, some US crime fiction. I'm, lo- I'm loving S.A. Cosby's new book, uh, Razor Blade Tears. Um, I love Attica Locke's work. Uh, it's different. Um, for me, it's different, right? And, and maybe that's why I'm enjoying it more. But if we're talking about crime drama, it's, I mean, British TV is far better. It's more realistic. Um, yeah. So if it seems wrong, basically. <laughs> uh, what about TV or cinema? Oh. Cinema, always, yeah. I love going to the cinema late on a weekday. Uh, where there's absolutely nobody in there and you get you know, get a whole bag of pick a mix like 10,000 calories worth and you eat that while the trailers are still going on nice. yeah. that, that's when I'm round at Vasim's house with his wife watching the TV <laughs> <laughs> next he, only watches, he only watches soap operas so. uh, next question um, I think we know the answer in Vasim's case but Night Owl or Early Bird Oh, he's both. Yeah, I'm a bit of an insomniac, really, so I don't right, really sleep okay. a lot. <laughs> um, 
he sleeps at the cinema. No, I'm I'm a night owl myself. Actually, no, I've got to the age where I'm neither. I'm just an old man. <laughs> yeah, we want to we, we want to believe that we're still cool and hip and that we stay up <laughs> into the night being edgy, but we're not. Yeah, we're more we can't be fall asleep on the sofa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about a fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Oh, fancy restaurant, easy. Give it a rest. Every time we go anywhere, we end up in a KFC because <laughs> that's because you're paying. Yeah, no, we, you insist on KFC. Why are you trying to hide it now from this? You, you can take the boy out of Glasgow, but I'm not allowed to have KFC. If my wife knows I'm having KFC, I'll get into trouble. So. I compl- I would agree with that. Apart from the, the chips at KFC are disgraceful, yes, but the yes. Zinger Tower Burger is probably one of the prime fast food burgers you can buy, and I'm including McDonald's in that statement. I would agree with that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so what was your answer to food? Yeah, <laughs> what was it? Kebab, isn't it? You're always eating kebabs. I've never denied the fact that I like a, a good kebab roll. It's you, you, you who always pretending that we're going to go to... <laughs> he, keeps, he keeps luring me in. Whenever we're at a festival together, saying, look, we go out for dinner in the evening. And he keeps saying, yeah, we go somewhere nice. We go somewhere nice. And we always, always end up in KFC. <laughs> this lovely chicken joint. You know, no, no. Do you know what his excuse is? His excuse is, oh, look, Faz, it's a really good restaurant. But you know what? Let's go KFC because when I'm at home, my missus doesn't let me go. It's not an excuse. It's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Terry, on our good. WhatsApp thread, we get um, we get photos every night when Vas goes for his walk. He'll send us photos from any kebab shop that he's in. <laughs> He'll literally send us photos of kebab shops. <laughs> Nobody cares. Terry, the last and the most important question. Last and most important question is real book or ebook? A lovely hardback of the dying day. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with 90% of that answer. Um, you love the dying of, day that much? Any form of <laughs> physical book. I mean, there, there are horses, of course, if I'm doing research or whatever, but 90% of the time, yeah, a, a proper book. Yeah, I was enjoying chatting to you guys, but you've broken Tarek's heart. He is mystery. Oh, book. Cool. I know, but Tarek, you can get your book on a physical copy as well. <laughs> it's not that I don't read a lot of. Uh, we've digital. got, we've got um, what's his name? Mark, uh, what's his name? Mass. Uh, Mark, four million, four million book sales. Mark. Yeah, Mark Edwards, Mark right? We've yeah. got his books on hard copy. As long as I've you guys are. Some, some, some folk have this thing about real books and they, they talk about the smell of them mm-hmm. and I think that's I love the smell of a real book in the morning exactly well, most, Marco most likes to smell real books sort of inside kebab shops so, um, <laughs> so no, 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 I have a olfactory I senses have gone I, I do use my uh, to, to be fair I do use my Kindle extensively because I'm on the tube to work every day when it's not Covid so I, and, I, and I find it easier to read with the Kindle than than trying to keep a book open in a, in a, when you're crushed in. Oh, it's the worst. You see how he's, he's backpedalling here? Do you see that? See yeah, I'm he's... glad, I'm oh, glad yeah. I've convinced you. I'm glad I convinced Desperate you. for Tarek to buy the dime, day. <laughs> <laughs> Ten copies at least. <laughs> well, thanks very much to Abir and Vasim for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed that chat. I think it was a lot of fun and also very informative. And uh, just in case you didn't 
managed to catch the name of the Seams book there, which is now out. It's The Dying Day. Uh, so you can pick that up in bookshops now. And um, as Abir said, his next book, The Shadows of Men, is out in November. But obviously you can pick up his previous books as well. And we'll put links to uh, where you can get those books in the podcast description. Do also check out their podcast, The Red Hot Chili Writers, because they've had some great guests on. And again, it's a lot of fun listening to that podcast as well. Uh, now, as for us, next week we've got another great guest. We're speaking with Duncan Hamilton, the former sports journalist turned author. His uh, first book, Provided You Don't Kiss Me, 20 Years with Brian Clough, won the William Hills Sports Book Award in 2007 and it also won the Best Football Book in two, at the 2008 British Sports Book Awards and since then his books on sport have uh, won numerous awards and this year he's just brought out his first fiction book still set in the world of sport called Injury Time uh, and again it's really worth picking that one up if you're into football in particular um, he's a really great writer and really captures the essence of sport even if you're not the biggest fan of some of uh, the sports or figures that he's writing about. So it's a really uh, interesting chat again, so I hope you can join us for that one. Uh, before we go, as ever, I will ask that if you enjoyed the episode, if you could leave us a rating and a review on your favourite podcast app, that would be amazing. And as Tarek would normally say, if you want to get in touch, uh, you can drop us a tweet at right underscore gear or send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. 